Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to the Stuff of Life. I'm your host, Julie Douglas. The early teens are years of upheaval and turmoil. They're years of physical and glandular change, new and wider relationships with people, and new inner feelings in the early adolescence. In the book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, author Rebecca Solnit writes that when she pictures herself at age 15, she can see flames shooting up. She says she sees herself falling off the edge of the world, and she is amazed that she survived not the outside world, but the inside one. Parents of almost every child find the age of puberty or early adolescence full of problems. The knowledge that these difficulties are normal and usually only temporary helps to turn family friction into more constructive channels. There's no doubt that the teenage years are marked by turmoil. But this betwixt and between stage is a relative newcomer born out of the 20th century when increasingly wealthy nations did away with child labor and instead focused on education. By the 1950s, adolescence emerged as its own bona fide phase of development. The adolescent is self-centered. Bill's response to every situation is concerned with how it affects him. Today, we treat teenagers like another species, beings fumbling for the portals into adulthood. We admire them, we fear them, but mostly we forget that at our core, each of us is still falling off the edge of the world. We are still that teenager. In this episode, we talk to a neuroscientist about the teenage brain. As a result of the increasing activity of this biological stress system, Uh, teens and young adults seem to have a more robust reaction to stress. And we talked to some intrepid teens about what it feels like to be on the edge of adulthood and what the media gets right and what the media gets wrong. Of course, it's a whole other experience compared to back then, but there's even a different experience because of um, your gender or like, like your race. Like it goes even deeper than just being simply that age. 
But first, let's take a step into the inner sanctum of the teenage girl with photographer Rania Matar. I have a photo in the book about like a little teenage girl in a Palestinian refugee camp, and she's she's wearing a headscarf, but she's dressed exactly like a picture in her closet of Hannah Montana, and she's striking the exact same pose as Hannah Montana. And there was something so endearing about that. So I photographed girls in the United States and in the Middle East. I mean, for me, this was also, the whole project is about identity, but it's also about my current identity as my daughter's identity as being from the two cultures. And it so happened that anytime you might put the news on now, you're going to hear about some terrorist something happening in the Middle East or about refugees. And we forget that this, the normal people behind the scenes are just the same. So for me, this work became really on focusing on that universality through the girls. In Rania's book, A Girl in Her Room, an essay by Susan Minot describes the bedroom as the first cocoon a girl will create for herself. This is a chrysalis. If we could see inside, we would witness one of the most extraordinary changes in the animal kingdom. Metamorphosis. The girls, in a way, are really growing up and trying to to kind of get a sense of who they are and how they are perceived in the world by their friends, by other adults, by, I mean, they're really trying to come to terms with their identity. And I felt that the room was the place where they would experiment with that, where they surrounded themselves on the walls, stuff on their beds, everything. It was such an intimate setting. The impetus for a girl in her room came from Rania's then newly emerging teenage daughter. When my daughter turned 15, I especially saw the change in her. She had been a tomboy soccer player before, and all of a sudden she was this like becoming this girly girl who I felt I hardly recognized. So I kind of became fascinated with with the changes she was going through and thought I was one of photographs something. And then her friends would come and I started kind of photographing them. And then I realized that these girls are in the case of my daughter, because I didn't know some of them as well, but my daughter was like a whole different person that I had never seen. And they all kind of started to sound almost the same, with the same expressions and tonalities and the same straight hair. And um, so I decided, you know, maybe it would be more interesting for me to photograph each girl by herself. And when I started photographing each girl, I kind of started originally with like friends of my daughters or daughters of my friends. And um, it so happened that we did it in their bedroom. And I quickly realized that this was my project. The room not only provided sanctuary, but it reflected aspects of the girl's personality back to the camera. When the girl was alone in her room, it was she was more, she was being herself. Second, I could see that there was such an interesting, really organic relationship with this, with the girl in her space. In Rania's book of photos, Susan Minot writes, pink gives way to glitter, stuffed animals to figurines. Pictures of animals are replaced by pictures of people and with objects no longer selected by a parent. Then to these, she adds her own creations and soon the walls are taken over and the closets in the bed. The teenager's room is her cave. So perhaps these scenes of girlhood morphing into womanhood are so compelling because they reach across time and connect to all of us who at one time or another were grasping for who we were or who we wanted to become. 
you know, it's, something very interesting happened because at, at that point I was really interested in photographing girls in this country and because this is where I live, this is where my girls, my daughter's growing up and then somewhere as I'm doing this project, it really struck a chord with me. Like, I was those girls 25 years earlier in a different country and a different culture, but I was, I was the same. And there was something, this is when it hit me, the whole universality of it, and I decided to include girls in the Middle East, but it's exactly what you say, like, um, it put me back into my teenage years, just like something, there are things that never changed, and maybe the pictures on the walls are of different rock stars, but I also had pictures of rock stars back then. <laughs> I mean, I had something a little different happening as I was growing up during the Lebanese Civil War. I was collecting sharpnel and bullets, bullets also from the street. Like whenever there was fighting, the next day I would go out with my friends and would collect those, and they were all displayed in my room, but this was also part of the identity I was growing up. The teens' geographical locations and socioeconomic status varied widely, but still, there were more commonalities than differences among them. The cover of the book, her name is Christilla. I love this photo because you look, you, you look at it and you really think this is a young woman in the United States or anywhere. You would never think this is a Lebanese girl. She's blonde or fake blonde. She's, she has a gigantic photo of Marilyn Monroe behind her and she has this kind of attitude laying down which is another kind of universal teenage girl in her bedroom attitude and and it throws people off a little bit because people assume that if she's going to be from the Middle East she has to be covered or oppressed or blah 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 with the whole kind of rhetoric we hear all the time and that's not the case. There are other markers of teenage universality beyond pop culture expression. And what was interesting is, even in the refugee camps and anywhere, it felt like there was always the mirror and often the laptop and Facebook. And for me, these were like, in some way, the outside world coming into the room, or because the mirror is like, okay, all they kind of seeing how they want to portray themselves to, to, to others, right, in some way. And, and Facebook is the way they're communicating with the outside world from the comfort of their bedroom. And this sense, mirrors and social sites like Facebook are conduits to identity. Think of all the images and expectations that teen girls are inundated with. Now think of all the attendant anxieties that come along with living in a time where the gaze has intensified. What they put on the wall is often what they want to be. And there's another young woman, her name is Sienna, and she surrounded herself with all these beautiful models in her wall. And there was something painful about that in some way. And, and she said something like, you know, as I was getting photographed, I kept thinking, how do I look compared to the pictures on my wall? We tend to think of teenage girls as armored up in their makeup and their defiant stances. But as Rania points out, that's often the condition of vulnerability. I found with the, with the girl in her room that they have this armor for the outside world. And if you take the time to really be with them in their room and kind of whatever, you see how vulnerable they are. This was really a revelation to me. And with all the girls. There was another girl in the book as well, and her name is Izzy. And she was wearing a sweater. And as I was photographing her, she got more at ease. She showed, she took off her sweater, and I could see that she had cuts on her arms. And 
And she's somebody who, when I saw on the street, looked like somebody who had built an armor and she had, you know, she had the, the attitude you might think of as teenage girls. All of a sudden, when she took off that, I'm like, oh my God, she's, she's struggling. And it was really actually a very powerful moment to me because then she told me, I do want to photograph them because when I look at them, it reminds me of what I overcame, where I was and where I am. So there was something also very powerful about that. That's also very vulnerable. Photographing the girls gave Rania a portal into teenagers that helped her to reconsider her own children. With me spending so much time with them and really building that trusting relationship, I could see the vulnerability and how hard it is to be a teenage girl. And it really made me so much more understanding of my own kids in some way, to give them more space in some way and to often ignore this kind of um, attitude that I could have worried about otherwise because I'm like, okay, no, this is this is just part of growing up and they have to do that. It's part of cutting the cord and I'm their mom. And these young women I was photographing, there's no way their mom could have taken the photos I took. So it was something that really made me understand that quite a bit. One thing that's interesting is as I'm photographing them, I'm really bonding with them up to a point that I think I'm one of them and I'm with past the mirror and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> what am I thinking? So what does Rania want you to take away from what she saw through her lens? Some people have a harder time looking young girls being photographed. All of a sudden people associate all sorts of, uh, you know, like, okay, there's sexuality in those. I'm like, there's nothing sexual. It's, it's, there's something empowering about owning up to being a girl and to you know, you could be, you could go play soccer the next day, but you still are owning up to your body changing and all that. And there's something I feel like it's important for me to look at the work with respect that the girls deserve. To wear her hair and clothes according to the latest style is much more important than to wear them in the most becoming way. She's not mature enough yet. The world knows best, and she wants to be sure of her place in the world. In the Wired article, A Troubling Adaptation, The Beautiful Teenage Brain, David Dobbs writes, quote, In scientific terms, teenagers can be a pain in the ass, but they are quite possibly the most fully, crucially adaptive human beings around. Without them, human beings might not have readily spread across the globe. In this segment, we talk to Elaine F. Walker about vulnerability and the teenage brain. Early teens are years of uneven development. There are spurts of mental energy as well as physical. And at other times, nothing seems to be happening. Research on adolescence, brain development, brain function and behavior is an area that is very active right now. And we have a, a lot to learn. I'm Elaine Walker, and I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Emory University. For 30 years, Elaine has been conducting research on risk factors for serious mental disorders, especially schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. And guess what? Being a teen can be a risk factor, depending on, of course, genetics, but also the kinds of stressors teens are exposed to, not to mention certain drugs. Certainly at this point, there's plenty of evidence that adolescents are more responsive to certain emotional stimuli 
than either younger children or adults. And then there's the stress response, as regulated by the HPA axis or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. The main thing is that cortisol, the stress hormone, is released. And the brain gets wind of this hormone and tells the hypothalamus and pituitary glands to chill out, which both puts the body on high alert, but makes sure that it doesn't go overboard. The problem is when there's a persistent, elevated cortisol release that, left unchecked, can lead to changes in brain structure and behavior. In and of itself, that normative increase in cortisol release may make adolescence a more vulnerable period because the stress system, the HPA axis, is ramping up its activity. It's basically one part amped up emotional response to stress and one part dicey environmental conditions, along with the brain still under renovation state that could present a tipping point. The fact that so many psychiatric disorders have their peak onset period during adolescence and young adulthood is probably a function of the fact that brain maturation during adolescence is playing a role in triggering the manifestation of vulnerabilities. This means that for teens who are at the risk of schizophrenia, puberty could set the stage for the disorder, and hints of it can emerge in something called prodromal symptoms. Symptoms that are associated with heightened risk for later schizophrenia include subtle versions of the defining features of schizophrenia and, and other psychotic disorders. Uh, the individual might report that they think sometimes that they're hearing their name called, uh, but when they check, there's no one there. And they attribute that perceptual anomaly to just their imagination. Turns out that those who go on to full-blown psychosis have higher levels of cortisol, have exposure to more stress, and are more likely to use cannabis. The thing about this that's so fascinating is that the same underlying plasticity that sets the conditions for vulnerability to brain changes like psychoses may be the saving grace for the teen who can be identified early on. This work is still in the investigative stages. So many of the studies have not yet been replicated. However, it does appear that the likelihood that an individual will develop a psychotic disorder can be reduced if they are provided with cognitive therapy after they begin to show the prodromal signs. This kind of neuroplasticity is in itself a big risk by nature. The idea that to ride the edge of development, you have to ride the razor's edge of a shape-shifting brain, negotiating the twists and turns of risk, reward, and emotion. Let's watch some of these youngsters as they spend Friday afternoon and evening. We'll see what some of the common troubles are. This is the no, final countdown. You try this again, you're going to lose your wife. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Mm, I don't think they're ready for these hot tracks. Nobody wants you like I love you. They're not ready.
Vox Communications is a multimedia and journalism program for uncensored teen publishing and self-expression. Four Vox teens took over the studio to record their thoughts on gender, how they're represented in the media, and how media, like, you know, high school musical, shaped their ideas about adolescence. My name's Catherine, a.k.a. Cat. I'm 18. My glorious gap year is ending gloriously. My name's Manuel. I am 18 years old. I turn 19 on Sunday. I graduated from North Carolina High School last year, and I also took a gap year. My name is Amira. I'm 17. I go to the Cap School of the Arts. I'm Caleb. I'm 18. I'm grown status now. Mm. Um, <laughs> I go to Best Academy High School. What do you think the media gets wrong and right about being a teenager? I don't know. I see a spectrum, really. Like, I either see, like, teen celebrities like Kylie or, like, local news teenagers that are only, like, you know, oh, you know, they were body slammed by a police officer in a classroom or, yeah, true. you know, they're doing mm-hmm. something crazy on the streets. What I see are minority teens only being reported on when something bad happens. Mm-hmm. And um, when non-minority teens... Mm. white people (laughs) (laughs) Um, you see things like these four college girls died in a car accident well that's that's sad of course but that happens all the time why are you following that yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course here in Atlanta we have a huge opioids and drug abuse but it's really only reported on minorities who are doing it when in reality It's the wealthier areas of the city that have the highest use. When I think about teens, I think about how we're portrayed in movies. Yes. As if, like, every single high school in America has this major pack mentality. Goths here, loners here, jocks here, the popular kids. I'm like, that never worked at my school. I just want to say that High School Musical let me down because I thought it was going to be exactly like that. And it's not. It's kind of like High School Musical. My school's all boys, but I just, there are, like, you know, the jocks, and then there are the nerds and the geeks and, like, the people that, like, just don't do anything at all. Wow. But I think that, like, from, from what I've been able to experience from high school, like, even though there's division, I feel like teens now aren't judging, like, millennials aren't judging each other based on, like, characteristics. Yeah. yeah. More teens are really now judging yourself off of, like, what your resume look like, girl, or like what you doing, or like like your status. Yeah, like yeah. your status. Yeah, like it isn't really about like I mean, physical appearance is still always going to be something teens, yeah. you know, if you thick or not. But other than <laughs> that, I mean, the whole like jocks versus nerds thing that isn't yeah. that's yeah. really that's non-existent. A big that's a thing of the past. Today's teens seem to be on the whole better adjusted. In 2015, the Centers for Disease Control released the results of the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Survey and found that today's teens smoke less, drink less, and have sex less than the previous generation. For instance, 10.8% of teens today smoke cigarettes. 20 years ago, that was 34.8%. Today's teens are also 46% less likely to binge drink than teenagers 20 years ago. In fact, they're 21% less likely to have ever tried alcohol at all. 
And yet they just can't shake the reputation that they're overdoing it, especially emotionally. What adults have said in my life, like um, when I overreact about things, mm -hmm. um, they say because by the time you're an adult, the things that we think about are much are like small things to them. Like all that petty stuff that goes on at school, that's small stuff. At some point, it's kind of like it's non-existent in, like, in adulthood. Mm -hmm. like, so they don't really, according to at least with my adults, like mm -hmm. my adults. But I feel like adults really just like, some adults probably just lie to you because adults are being just as petty as teenagers it's true. now. Yeah. Especially it's true. since, it's true. I mean, since social media is huge, yeah. adults are just as petty on Facebook as we are petty yes, on Snapchat. On oh, please. Oh, gosh. Like they're so. making memes just like we are. <laughs> yeah, what? and they're laughing at all the same things exactly. that go down just like we are. And if adults are exposing themselves as petty in social media, even as Amira points out, they tell teens that the little indignities of life don't matter, what exactly does it mean to be an adult anyway? For me, adulthood isn't necessarily turning 18 or mm -hmm. getting a car or a bank account. It's how you carry yourself. Yeah. It's how you react to situations, how you yes. adapt to things, yes. how how you express yourself and how you treat others. <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically how I view it. As an adult, you're really pushed to build relationships with other adults who have opportunities for you. So understanding that whatever you say or whatever you do has a consequence to it, I mean, I think that's what adult means. Sometimes it's hard to argue what adulthood means because, you know, like... People are human, so they're gonna they're gonna slip up sometimes. Yeah, like adulthood has so many definitions to so many different people. Yeah, I think a point to say is that adulthood has nothing to do with your age. I think that's something that we all kind of agree on. Yes, mm. I remember when I turned eighteen. I'm thinking, oh my God, there's gonna be this amazing flash of light. I'm gonna <laughs> gain superpowers. Oh, no. I'm gonna say. Save the word. I was just so in my imagination. I'm sorry. No. But like, <laughs> but like, truthfully, I feel the same way that I felt when I was five, when I was 10, when exactly. I was 12. Like there is no grand transition into this. Mm -hmm. One day you just look up and you're 18. And the first question, I'm like, oh, I'm an adult. And then I'm like, what now? <laughs> I'm not a lottery ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Like, wow, okay, new transition. Is there a, an, an instruction manual? This leads to a discussion of expectations. I guess from the African-American point of view, as a black man, you know, you're supposed to go out, do what you're supposed to do, and come home and bring home the money to support your family. True. Now, I completely agree that I mean from from the base from the baseness of that as a man you're supposed to do that. But well, I, well, I feel like then <laughs> well, well taking on adding a black man to that from what my family has shown me what a black man is supposed to be. Yeah. I feel like in society and I'm I'm not I'm not playing the victim here because I don't like playing the victim here. Yeah, I got you. But black men are really like I'm not even gonna use ostracized because that's just such a huge and loaded word. Yeah. But I feel like 
black men have to do even more than just what a regular, let's just say, white man has to do. I mean, I feel like True. our image is always under attack. Caleb feels the pressure of holding up the mantle of being a black man to project and work to attain a positive image that his white male counterparts are already imbued with. And this is very much part of the culture of patriarchy. In our American culture, we're still definitely living under this patriarchy that men have to be this way and do yeah. this and women follow afterwards, which I I personally would like to challenge. Um on my, in my personal life and in family. I know my mom, she likes the idea of the patriarchy man doing this, but I don't. <laughs> I think that's kind of boring. Yeah, I think it is too. And I, like, I, I feel like my mom at times, like she would want for a man to like be able to, you know, do all of those magical things that a man in America is supposed to do. Yeah. But I feel like at the end of the day, in the back of her mind, she feels like, but I can really do this all by myself. Exactly. And independence and there. What is, yeah. and I, I hate to be the person, but like, what does it mean to be a man or what does it mean to be a woman? Yeah. And stuff yeah, like that. That's like, really the truth of it. Yeah. And women can do the same things men can do. Um, Thank you, I, Oh, <laughs> from from the female perspective and from what my family um i believe expects from me is that you know they want me to stand tall and hold my own ground like you know they firmly believe in the fact that there are things that women can do than men can do so they hold me up. I think I feel like they hold me up to some pretty high expectations. Yeah. Which I feel like is both really amazing because they have such faith in me, but it's also a little constricting because what if I want to go off yeah. and do something else? <laughs> and so it's like, hmm. Well, then I feel like there's two things to that. Like, one, since we grow. True. <laughs> I mean, that's a decision that we get to make for ourselves. But then, too, I feel like with the teenagers of today, I feel like that, like the lines between man and woman are completely blurred. So, what do teens want from their parents and society? What you experience in life is completely different from what somebody else has experienced in life. So don't push your expectations or what you know or what you think somebody should know onto everyone. If you enjoyed high school and you did the typical prom, prom queen, prom king, things like that, that's cool. But let let us as teens be us. Let us discover ourselves without your interference. And it's great that you know who you are, but... Let us figure out who we are. I would like to experience my life and maybe be better or not as great, which I doubt it. Through your guidance, not your interference. Yeah, guide on the side, sage on the stage. Manuel's now in his second semester at Oglethorpe University. We reached out to him to see what his thoughts are about current events. Hi, Julie. Lots has changed since we last spoke in June. Here's some of my follow-up thoughts. There is that political correctness that went out the door when 
the whole election started. And people are just, you know, covering it up with, oh, the economy is bad, this and that. But at the core of it, it's still this American thing, this American racism. I mean, there's, I hate to say it, but sometimes there's the, there's nothing more American than being racist. If there's nothing else that I want for myself, it's just to be treated like a human being. Um, right now, we don't know what's going to happen next with Trump in office. poignant stories we tell about ourselves is about emerging from the chrysalis of childhood into adolescence, a fleeting time when we've lived our emotions like a fever dream. That's because it's a time of radical transformation, one that we need not just to have the courage to take a risk, to survive, but to change the world. The Stuff of Life is written and executive produced by me, Julie Douglas, and co-produced by Noel Brown. Original music is by Noel Brown. And editorial oversight is provided by contributing producer Dylan Fagan and head of production Jerry Rowland. This episode also featured music by Tristan McNeil, Aaron Grubbs, and Dylan Fagan. If you're wondering about the instructional clips for Parents Raising Teens, those are from the 1953 film Age of Turmoil from archive.org. We'd like to thank Rania Matar for walking us through the minds and spaces of teenage girls. You can find her book, A Girl and Her Room, in stores and learn more on ranyamatar.com. Thank you to Elaine F. Walker at Emory University for explaining the wonders and the pitfalls of the teenage brain. And many, many thanks to our team participants from Vox Team Communications, Caleb Anderson, Manuel Portillo, Catherine Boyd, and Amir Deshaver for kicking the adults out of the studio and recording your insights. You can find out more about Vox Team Communications at voxatl.com. If you like what we do here at The Stuff of Life, visit us on Facebook and Twitter. In the meantime, you can email us at thestuffoflife at howstuffworks.com. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.